pray here? I, I just about started praying there for you. I won't tell you who, but yesterday one of the elders told me that their wife really needed this sermon. So uh, I thought it'd be fun for you to try to figure out who that was. You know. Anyway, um, I want to say again, I don't skip anything when we're doing a book. And uh, this would probably be one of the places that would be easier uh, to skip than to bring up with you, but I can't do that. So we're going to do that this morning. And uh, I'm going to try to drag you into my world a little bit, and I'm talking about the world of uh, pastors and ministry from that standpoint, uh, because uh, there's a lot of things that happen that, you know, you would never know, uh, just like I don't know things in your profession uh, that you know, and so I'm going to bring you in on a little bit of that. Uh, Basically, I spent eight years in formal training for ministry. Uh, I went to a Bible college. I did the gen eds and all the normal stuff you have to do with math and biology and all that other stuff. But my focus was on the ministry and on Bible. And then I went to a seminary that's a four-year program, and so I have eight years of that uh, training. And in that eight years, uh, knowing what came before me uh, in terms of ministry and missionaries, in that eight years, I was never told not even one time that I can remember by even one professor that I would have to trade in my family for ministry. Now, why is that even a question? Why would anybody even talk about that? Well, that's because before my time in ministry, uh, and you know, the folks, uh, the great preachers of the past and the great missionaries of the past, before me was a generation of missionaries and other ministers who went years literally, without seeing their kids uh, very much at all. And sometimes they uh, didn't see them for a year or two. Uh, Kids grew up with house parents on the mission field, and they grew up in mission schools their whole life, all the way up till college, because mom and dad are out in the middle of the bush or somewhere, and there's no place for their kids. It's dangerous for their kids. They put them in a mission school somewhere. Uh, Their missionary parents saw them maybe a few times a year, and maybe they saw them uh, quite a bit in the summer, but not not that long. The point is this. They spent a lot of time from their mom and dad away in a different place with uh, different parents that weren't their own. Noel and I got to see one of those schools from a distance when we were in Africa, and it was called the Rainforest School, and it was in Cameroon. And uh, that's where the missionaries we were with, that's where their kids went to school. That's where they spent most of their time. Their mission parents saw them just a a few times and uh, tried to keep in touch with them. But in those days, it was very difficult to do that. Uh, So anyway, that's the way it was. Now, I want to say that nobody thought that was good. Nobody thought that's a great thing to do. uh, But they didn't know what else to do. And I knew that, and let me put it this way, I knew that I didn't want to mortgage my family for ministry, but also I did not want to mortgage my ministry for family, if you understand what I'm talking about there. There's things that you need to do for your family and things you need to do for God's family. And I'm talking as uh, somebody in my position as a pastor. Uh, So over the years, the great ministry pendulum has swung quite a bit the other way And I'm going to say too far the other way. Uh, As many of you know, I spent nine years as the head of theology and credentialing for the Midwest District of the Evangelical Free Church of America, which meant that uh, I had three different boards around Kansas and Nebraska. And if you wanted to be ordained as a minister, you had to write a paper 
and then you had to appear before this board and defend it orally, your theology. And uh, I was in that ministry probably 15 or 16 years, but I was head of it for nine. One of the things that, well, a, a few things, but one of the things that really bothered me uh, as I listened to these young ministers coming out of our seminaries today, and now I've got my eyes are all watery, hang on. I treated them with the antihistamine, it doesn't work, but uh, here I am, can't see. Okay, here's what I ran into in the ordination of young ministers. I'm talking about the people just coming out of seminary wanting to be pastors. And I'm talking about in these ordination exams where you're trying to find out, did God call them into the ministry? Do they know their theology? Do they understand what we're talking about? And do they fit in with our group? And uh, I was very upset with hearing what I heard. Now, I'm going to quote things I've heard from these young ministers as we're asking them about their call to ministry and what they're going to do. And so here's, here's a compendium of some things that, a compilation of some things that I heard. So not all from the same person, but I've heard some of the people say all these things. So we're asking them about, did God call you to ministry? Do you agree with our theology? Are you going to serve the people of God? And here's what I heard. These are direct quotes. My family comes first. So we're talking about you getting into a church, ministering to people, and their first response was, I want you to know my family comes first. First over what? You know what they meant? They meant over the church, and by that they meant the people. My family comes first. They also said, I will not do meetings ever after 6 p.m. at night. <laughs> you know, that's usually when my folks are available. One of them said, I will not miss any of my children's events. Another said, I will not be disturbed on my days off, which means they're going to disappear, shut their phones off, and you can't get a hold of them, even if you needed to get a hold of them. And another one said, I don't do visitation. Another one said, it is not my job to visit people in the hospital. Another one said, if my church work conflicts with my family issues, family will come first. Now, I could go on and on about this because I heard a lot, enough that I was sick and tired of the folks coming out of seminaries. But what I find interesting is that some of the healthiest people I know, and I'm talking about they are, how they are in terms of their character and uh, the way they handle themselves and their knowledge and stuff, some of the healthiest people I know grew up on a mission field in mission schools. No parents to speak of. So what is the right balance here? Now, I want to say uh, that we're studying the book of Matthew. We're not stuck studying the other Gospels, right? But I'm going to bring in some things from the other Gospels just because I think the background would help us, but we want to focus on exactly what was it that Matthew wanted us to know as he was being moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And so we're in Matthew chapter 12, looking at verses 46 to 50. I hope you're already there. Here's what it says. Now, um, by the way, Jesus, I think, is in Capernaum, and uh, he just got through being accused that he is uh, casting out spirits by, by Satan's power, not by God's power. And then he talked about uh, the judgment of people, and then he talked about what it's like for somebody to be demonized, and uh, the demon is there, the demon leaves, and then some other wicked demons come back. He just got through talking about that. 
And I think he's in, I think he's in the sanctuary of the synagogue in Capernaum, and it's a packed crowd. All right, now, that's not that clear from chapter 12, verse 9. It looks like he's still in Capernaum. That's really not germane to the whole point, but he's in this crowded room. They can't get to him, and here's what happens. While speaking, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother, so Mary, and brothers, he's got four brothers, stepbrothers, were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Now, Noel and I got to visit uh, the remains of the, of the synagogue in Capernaum. It really isn't that big, probably not much bigger than our sanctuary here. And uh, the point is, it is so packed, the, the mom and the brothers want to talk to Jesus, but they can't get to him. The crowds are, are spilling out all over the place. So um, someone, verse 47, said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. So we've got Jesus inside doing ministry, right? He's teaching the people. That's what's going on. He's defending his ministry. He's defending his, his being Messiah. And uh, these people are coming, family members. And he gets the word from somebody. Some in the crowd says, hey, your mom and brothers are out here trying to get to you to speak to you. They want to talk to you. All right, so his family is outside. Jesus answers in verse 58, the one who was telling him that your mom and brothers are outside, he asked the question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. I don't know where they were sitting, but this, I've got the Bible here, so I had to make them over there. And he points to his disciples, these are my true family. And then he says, for whoever does the, let's say I skipped to verse, verse 49, and stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, behold, my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. I'm going to ask us to think about that today, what that would be like. All right, uh, this, this is going to be about that. And the issue is, first of all, in verse 46, that Jesus is teaching and by the way, in the back of your bulletin, uh, there's a place if you want to take notes here. Jesus was teaching when his physical family came and wanted to speak to him. So he's in the middle of a ministry. His family comes. You hear the part about his family? His family comes, and they want to talk to him. Most likely, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Uh, it's going off of verse uh, 9 of chapter 12. And it's a packed house. It's standing room only when Jesus is teaching. His mom and four stepbrothers uh, came to talk to him about something. Now, I just want you to recognize that Matthew doesn't care that you know why they came. That's not his point. Matthew doesn't tell us, here's why they wanted to talk to Jesus so bad. But I'm going to tell you why today, because we find it in other Gospels, because I think it'd be good for you to know that. But Matthew doesn't care about that. And when we're studying the book of Matthew, we need to stick with what he's teaching us and why he's teaching us the way he is. Uh, so we'll do that. But his mom and his stepbrothers are outside. And Jesus had uh, four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And he had some sisters. So I want you to turn in your Bible to, well, maybe you don't have to turn, but I do, in, in chapter 13, verse 55. And we're going to find out about his family. It says, is this not the carpenter's son? That's Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And in fact, they are. And his sisters, are they not all with us? 
Where then did this man get these things? So they're saying, how did this guy get to be so intelligent? We know his dad's just a carpenter. We know his brothers and sisters, and without saying, he's probably saying, they're not that much. (laughs) They're not that great, but here they are. We know them. And I want you to know that Joseph is not mentioned here. Presumably, he's already died at this point because he's not mentioned. And there's no indication about how many sisters Jesus had, and nowhere are they ever named. He has at least two sisters because he uses the plural, uh, you're, you're the sisters there, but it doesn't tell us how many. He could have had way more than that. We don't know. His half-brother James, or his stepbrother James, later wrote the book of James in the Bible, which means he came to faith, and he was an elder of the Jerusalem church. Uh, he had his brothers, but they did not all come to faith until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I get that uh, from John chapter 7, verse 5. And I think it's important for our understanding. John 7, verse 5, where it says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. His family was rejecting him as being the Messiah. They're not rejecting him as being a family member in the physical family, but as being Messiah. So what does the family want to talk to Jesus about during his teaching time? Why are you interrupting him in the middle of his teaching of his people doing his ministry? Uh, Can't that wait? Well, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at that. As, as the crow flies, it's about 20 miles from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, to where he's at in Capernaum. So they're on a mission. They had to really want to come. They had to really want to be there. And so they're going out of their way to come to Jesus right in the middle of his ministry and bother him about that. And Mark gives us a clue. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21 as to why they would do this. Mark 3.21, when his own people heard this, okay, what, what did they hear? When his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. See, they know, in fact, in Mark 3.22, they know that the religious leaders of Jesus' day are calling him a person that works by the power of Satan. He works by Beelzebul. Uh, the, the head of demons, that's how he casts out demons. Jesus said that's not possible. Uh, if, if that was true, Satan's destroying his own house. And they also think he's insane. Do you get that? They're, they're thinking that we're listening to what the leaders of Israel are saying, and Jesus is making some pretty outlandish claims. We think our brother's lost his mind. He's insane. He's nuts. And we've got to stop him. One of the reasons they're also there is because he's so busy, he doesn't even have time to eat. And they say, what kind of insanity is that? And so they have this idea that they need to rescue the crowds from Jesus because he uh, is not tracking well. That's a clue. We also know that they would have known that he's upsetting the religious leaders. And maybe they don't like it. I want you to know that Mary's with the boys doing this right now. Uh, Yes, the Holy Mother Mary was also wanting to stop her son because she's no holier than any other woman who's had children before. She's just a human who came to faith in Christ later. Now, if you had been Jesus and you'd been told, hey, uh, your your family's outside, they they really want to talk to you, uh, then I want to know what, I don't want you to talk out loud, that's just me here, but I want to know in your mind, what would you do? If somebody said, hey, your family's outside, they really want to talk to you, you're in the middle of your ministry, whatever it is, what would you do? Would you stop and say, hey, folks, uh, my family comes before ministry, so 
I'll be right back or maybe I won't be back at all. Depends on what they want. You know, what, what are you going to do there? What decision are you going to make? What would you have done? Well, uh, we find out what Jesus did in verse 47. Someone called him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Now, Jesus doesn't ask, is it an emergency? Is it urgent? Is, are one of the sisters sick? Anything like that? He didn't say that at all. And we learn here that someone thought it important to interrupt Jesus to let him know his family is desiring to speak to him. Now, here we begin to see that there is a division between the physical family and the, uh, uh, of a person, I should say, and a spiritual family of the believers. Does Jesus know what's going on here? Well, it would be hard to believe that the Spirit of God did not tell Jesus what was going on with his family, why they were coming to save him and the people from him. So we look again in John chapter 10 and verse 20 uh, for another bit of the clue as to why they're coming after Jesus. And it says, and many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? So we have all this, and the parents are hearing what they're, you know, what, or Mary at least, and the boys are hearing about what they're saying about their brother and her son. He's insane. He's full of demons. Why are you listening to him? So they urgently want to get in the middle of his ministry, I think, and stop it because they need to save the people from him and his teaching. So I'm sure Jesus knew what was going on. The Spirit of God informed him of that. His family, so let me say this, okay? His family was being used of the enemy to dissuade Jesus from carrying out his ministry. Sometimes, well, let me, let me preface it with this. Right now, every single denomination in America does not have enough senior pastors. I'm talking about people that would take a role as senior pastor in, in their denominational churches. They have all kinds of youth ministers, they have all kinds of associate pastors, but people don't want to be pastors anymore. Our young people are not considering that as a, as a whole, they're not considering that as a ministry opportunity to ask God, are you calling me to serve your people? It's just not happening. And so there's a great shortage. It's hard for people to get senior pastors to come to their churches anymore because there's fewer and fewer and fewer. And sometimes a young man may have a call of God on his life, let's say, to be a senior pastor in ministry. And a father has said, there is no future with pastors in ministry. Do something else. I heard one of them say, you can't make any money that way. <laughs> now, there's a father who doesn't understand what ministry is about, does he? And that's just as bad as the young person who uh, I ran into also in seminary and I had to ask myself, is that why I'm here, uh, who had no call of God on his life at all for the pastorate, but he goes to seminary because his mommy told him to. And the seminaries are full of the firstborn males because uh, we tend to have a little more OCD stuff going on because of our folks, thank you. But the whole point is you're not there for the right reason. So some are being turned away and some are being made to go who really shouldn't be there. Those guys statistically last in a church almost five years, and then they never go back. Anyway, now the crowd around Jesus knows the situation, and this sets Jesus up to teach a truth that is not well, I'm going to say, not well accepted today by believers. Jesus does give preferential treatment to his, I'm sorry, 
Jesus does not give, in this situation, preferential treatment to his physical family. He has another family that he is committed to above the physical one. He does not stop his teaching. He does not go outside and talk to them. But he says, this is an opportunity to talk to these people about the true family that we want everybody to know about, the one we tell kids about so they can be in the true family, and that's the spiritual family of God. And so this is going to be a challenge to all of us, right? Well, I hope it is. It was to me uh, when I had to come to grips with this. What is Jesus really saying? I told you generations before me, they pretty much mortgaged their families for ministry. I knew that was wrong. But then I run into a new generation who uh, thinks ministry is just like any other job, and I'll do it when I'm good and ready. And if it bothers me after work, I'm not going to be a part of it. And that's not the way to go either. We learn in verses 48 to 50. Our true family is made up of those who believe in Jesus and obey God. And we need to come to grips with that. That's how Jesus handles the situation. Everybody knows his family's outside. The guy had to tell him in front of everybody. The other gospels make it clear that the whole crowd knew his family's outside. And Jesus doesn't go outside. I asked you, what would you do? And you had an answer for that. What we need to deal with is this. Does my allegiance to God come before my allegiance to all other earthly allegiances? I've had to ask that of myself. My whole ministry and how I do it, I, I guess I shouldn't give a percentage because I really don't know, but it has a lot to do with what Jesus said here. So how much of your ministry has a lot to do with what Jesus says here? I'm not the only one that should listen, right? Now, if that upsets you, please take it up with Jesus, okay? Uh, I'm just telling you what the guy said, right? I'm just telling you, this is what Jesus said on that day, and this is what happened, and this is what he did. Uh, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to convict you of anything. That's not my job. My job is to tell you what Jesus said the best that I can and apply it to my own life first. What are you going to do with it? He's the one that convicts us. I am reporting the lesson. So let the text speak to you this morning in terms of your priorities and mine. In verse 48, Jesus makes this public as an issue when he addressed the person who relayed the message about Jesus' family waiting outside for him. The person is probably just being polite in telling Jesus the news. Depending on where Jesus was, if he was sitting in the seat of Moses in the synagogue, he could not because the doors that enter are on both sides on the back, uh, to his back, he would not have known his parents were out back there. It wasn't like they were standing in the back because there's no entrance in the back. And somebody outside is telling him that. Everybody inside hears it. And so it's a public issue. And they know his family's outside. And this person is just being polite. Hey, hey, your family's outside. They want to talk to you. Uh, I doubt that that person knew anything about how Jesus was going to respond to this situation to the crowd. He was just being polite. Jesus presents a question. This is a good teaching time. And so he says, let me ask you this. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who are they really? Do you understand? I hope I'm right on this, but do you understand Jesus just made a comment about his family? You want to really be my mom, my brothers, my sisters? you got to do something more than these people are doing. They really aren't my family. They're my physical family, you know, blood-related to half of them in a half way. 
but they're not my family. Who is your family? This bears some thought, as does everything that Jesus says, right? His mother and brothers take, uh, may take offense at what he is about to say. I'm not sure how well they could hear him, but he says it. He says something more important than physical family relationships are at stake here. What does he mean here? Well, in this world. This is secondary to the spiritual family of God. That's what he's saying. So there's two families on earth, right? The physical family and a spiritual family. Now, the spiritual family has people on, on Satan's side of a dark spiritual family, and we're on God's side in a, in a family of light. In verse 49, Jesus stretches out his arm towards his disciples. So apparently they can see where the disciples are. They would always be near the, the rabbi that was teaching them. And he points at them and says, you want to know where my mom and my brothers are? Right there. Now, as far as I can tell, uh, none of them were physically related to him. No blood. Just because someone has a physical family does not necessarily mean that the members of that family are believers, right? I would think that probably all of us could think of people somewhere in our family who don't know, no, don't know Jesus and have denied him and rejected him. They're of our physical family. They're not of our spiritual family. Many people die and they end up in heaven. They realize how many of their relatives are not there. And they're not part of the family. And they never were part of the family. There is a family that will last beyond our current physical family. There's a family that is greater than my physical family. There's a family in heaven that is my family. And many of us have family members who think they are believers, but they are not. We weep for them because we know they need to be a family member of Jesus Christ. We will only spend eternity with believers, which in many cases will not include family members because they rejected Jesus. They said no to Jesus. If you're a Muslim who trusted Christ, you would have a physical family member or members who would think it their religious duty to kill you. We don't live in a society like that. We don't have that division between those who are members of Islam and those who are just physical family who aren't to the point where we put those people to death if they go against Allah. We don't do that. But if you were in that family, you would start to see the critical importance of the spiritual family. They're your real family. They're your greatest family. And they're the ones that care about you in ways your physical family does not if they don't know Christ. So what do you suppose his physical family thought about that when he said that? They might have thought, you know, he is insane. Nobody talks about their family that way. I don't know. It doesn't say that. I do remember, and I've, I've used this before, but it always sticks out in my mind in this kind of a situation. Noel and I were taking uh, map classes so we could go through uh, adoption period. And for some reason, the leader of the, of the class decides to ask, if a decision in your family with your adopted child ever came down between your allegiance to God and your allegiance to the family, who would you choose? <laughs> Why are you asking that? How many of you would choose God? My hand went up, Noel's hand went up, maybe a couple other people. How many people would choose family? And a lady sitting next to me, a young lady, she, she raised up her hand. She looked at me and said, I'm sorry, Pastor, but if it comes down between God or my family, I'll take my family every time. I know it's, not hard, it's hard to believe, but I kept my mouth shut. 
but this was going. I thought, how nearsighted can you be? What about eternity and God? See, it really wasn't nearsightedness. It was blindness. And it didn't serve her well. Now, this did not mean, please listen, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? This did not mean that Jesus didn't want his family to come to faith. Not at all. But right now, except for Mary, possibly, they're on the outside of Jesus' true family. Outsiders. Not on the inside. I had to tell a person once. I had a, I'm sorry. I had a person tell me once. We were talking about eternal life and his dad. And he said, and I quote, if my dad is in heaven, then I would rather burn in hell. And then he walked away. That's nearsightedness. Heaven changes us. <laughs> Thank goodness. In verse uh, 50. Now Jesus tells us about some membership in the only real family that counts for eternity. And the reason that these disciples are his real family is given to us here. You want to be a part of the real family of God? You want to know you're a part of that family? Here it is. He said, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's my true family. The person who does the will of his father in heaven, that person, Jesus says, is family. So the mother, brother, and sisters of Jesus are the people who by faith demonstrate his or her relationship to Jesus by being obedient to the father. Obedience doesn't get you into heaven. It's a sign that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that you're counting on to get into heaven. Jesus, I think, didn't use the word father here. He said mother, brother, those things. Because of his teaching in Matthew 23, 9, where he said, call no man on earth your father. And he meant a father like the one who is life-giving and, and like God, his father. Matthew seven twenty one, which we're close to, so I'm going to go read it. says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Here's the deal. Some people think they're going to get into heaven by doing good works and being good. The Bible talks about it all the time. What they miss is you can't do good works unless you know Jesus as your Savior first. There's no such thing as good works without a relationship to Jesus. Once you trust Christ as your Savior, that means you say to God, I'm a rotten sinner. There's nothing I can do to pay for my sins. I'm going to accept the fact that you died on the cross for me, and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I'm trusting in you. And that's what saves you, free of cost, not hard to do. He did all the hard stuff. But you can't work your way in. So you can't just claim, yeah, I know about Jesus. I believe there's a Jesus. I believe he's the Son of God. Well, so do the demons, and they're not saved. I have to make a decision. That Matthew 7.21 teaches us that just claiming his name does not put me in a relationship with him. But it's those who have trusted in him, in him as a savior and have a relationship with him. Is that you? It was me when I turned eight years old. My dad told me how to do that and I did it. Thank goodness for him. 
Does Jesus' family get preference in your life? That's what he's asking. That's what Matthew put this in here for. Now, to look at it in a very positive way, what's it feel like? If you know Christ as your Savior, what's it feel like? To be his brother. To be his sister. To be in his family. It should feel really great. Okay. I struggled a lot with how am I going to uh, try to apply this. Okay, You'll notice that in your bulletin. There's no number one, two, three, four application. It's going to be all this stuff. I couldn't use anybody but myself because I have a decision that I had to make in the ministry. And uh, I don't know what your decisions are, so let's just use me. Not that I am the uh, greatest example of all these things. I don't mean that. But the question I'm asking each of us, I, and I ask myself this, back in college when I'm listening to missionaries talking about how families used to get mortgaged and then talk about this passage, what are you going to do? How important is Jesus going to be to you? How important is the family of God to you? Unfortunately, many Christians today say, well, not as important as my physical family, not at all. And that's not Jesus' answer. So I'm going to lay out some issues or questions, and as I have had to do with myself, and still make decisions in this area, uh, who is your first family over all others? You heard what Jesus said. I, again, am not your conscience before God. I'm not here to uh, browbeat you into doing anything. If it's not your decision from your heart, I don't want it to be because of me. You have your own. I'm merely a messenger, and I, I preach this to myself many times. I had to make decisions about goodness, a lifetime of trying to be a pastor and minister, I guess. Uh, I want you to know this. Because of ministry, I have missed most all family reunions with the Hubbards and the Anholtzes. Because they like to do them on the weekends at the lake somewhere. And I don't have time to go to the lake on Saturday and get sunburned and get healed enough to show up at, at church anymore. And they go on through the, the weekend. So I think we've been to one in all these years. I want you to know I get my family reunion every Sunday here at church with you. So I've been to a bunch, <laughs> lots. Maybe sometimes you wish I'd take a break and let somebody else talk to you, right? I have missed holidays. I'm not saying I'm something great. I'm just saying this, is, this has to be part of the decisions that I made. I've missed holidays with physical family because of needs with spiritual family. I have done funerals on Christmas Eve, almost on Christmas Day once, but they decided, well, let's, you know, Pastor might want to spend time with his family. Well, they're in another state. I didn't tell them that. Uh, but Christmas Eve funerals, I've done that. I missed many sporting events for my kids. Please don't throw tomatoes at me. Doesn't mean I don't love them. I do. And then I have taken time to help believers at every hour of the day and night uh, because I love that family. I love you. That's why. So here's some questions. Do you or I make our physical family the priority over ministry and love situations for spiritual family? Do we follow Jesus in our thinking about family loyalties, which Matthew is presenting here? John and Mark also uh, present those things. 
better make sure I can actually see these notes right so I don't say something I didn't want to. Do we follow Jesus in our thinking about family loyalties? Which family? Is our church family really being treated like family? And I think the place you can see that the most is whose funerals do we go to and whose do we skip? I'm talking in, in the church body with the family. How much do I forsake the gathering because of sports and recreational events? And number seven, does human kinship take priority over spiritual kinship? And then as we answer those questions, I just want to bring up something that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. Pretty sure this edition has that. Yeah, okay. First Corinthians seven and verse seven. Paul says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. You know what he is? Single, unmarried. Yes, I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in one manner and another in that. In other words, not everybody has the gift of celibacy, but if you have it, you ought to take it. And then down in chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. Here's why he said that. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you. He's not saying you can't get married, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. I think that's what Jesus is really talking about. Do I have an undistracted devotion to the Lord? Well, I want to encourage you, because when I was going through this early in ministry, I believe this is one of the places I went for encouragement. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now and in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecution and in this age and eternal life. But. Many who will be first will be last, and the last will be first. So I say with my master and yours, if you are a doer of the will of the Father, you are my family and I am yours. And I love you, I hope you love me, as family should do. Now let me say something that uh, we'll just, uh, I don't want you to dwell on it. I just want to balance this, okay, <clears throat> a little bit. Correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> excuse me, but when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down, obviously, 
and there stood Mary, now a believer, and the apostle John, right? And he said, Mother, behold your son. And to John he said, This is your mom. This doesn't mean we don't love or take care of our family. Jesus did. It has everything to do with priority. So that's why I left a seminar that I was taking training in in Colorado. Didn't want to, but on a Tuesday night, drove all the way back here from Colorado Springs so I could do a funeral for one of my sisters in Christ on Wednesday. <laughs> and then went all the way back. Thank you for paying for the gas for that trip. I appreciate that. But you do that because of family, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't think you're telling us not to love our families or care for them or nurture them or bring them to Christ. But we often neglect a greater family, our spiritual family. And you want us to make them a priority in life that they need to be important to us as well. And we need to show our love to them as well. And so we find it difficult, but we want to be and do what you called us to be and do. And we're so thankful that you love us as family. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.